electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. You're listening to Halftime Report in progress. Is not under particularly strong threat right now. Uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty stable equilibrium. It's not a permanent equilibrium, but... There isn't really a serious competitor, and that's not because of any of this. It's because of our, our democratic institutions and the rule of law and the fact that, we, that, we, that the dollar's value is, is uh, pretty stable. Okay. Um, so, quickly, on the repo market, just any insight into that, and then I'll have my last comment here and just leave the last word to you, but particularly curious about the repo market. But I'll close by simply saying I'd ask you to turn off the purchase of mortgage-backed securities. As the chairman of housing and insurance, I'm particularly concerned about affordable housing and uh, the artificial prop for the mortgage-backed securities uh, does raise the cost of capital in that space. So whether you own it or occupy it or rent it, it's going to raise the, the cost there. But I'd just ask if you'd comment on the, the safety and soundness of the repo market, if you would. Of the repo market. Um, I, as far as I know, the repo market is functioning reasonably well these days. Are you talking about the reverse repo facility? Or yes. The reverse repo facility is, is a different thing. We can, we can continue this. I'd like to follow up with you later, and uh, my time has expired. I yield. Thanks. Gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Kasson is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Always a pleasure to see you and uh, appreciate your time here today. Um, the, I, want to, uh, I want to start with uh, this this chart in your monetary policy report, which I think is fascinating, chart 14 on page 17. This is this history of uh, wage growth and job growth. And for those of you who are, don't have it in front of you, broadly speaking, from 2000 to 2017, we had more workers than jobs. Um, from 17 until the COVID crisis, it was about the same. And since COVID, um, we've had more, more jobs than workers. And there's Tons of rich stuff in here that I just enjoyed reading, but but broadly speaking, if I if, if that was the only thing going on in the economy, I would assume that we had 20 years where it was essentially a buyer's market for labor, and and the last year and a half where it's been a seller's market for labor. Um, as you look at that, and if I go through and I look at from 2010 to 2020, CPI was up 20 percent over the period, um, and real median wage is less than 10 percent. Um, so for half of the economy, they didn't keep up with wages, even though we think of that as a very low inflationary period. Corporate profits were also up strongly, as, as you would expect. I'm not saying that with judgment, right? If it's a buyer's market for labor, you would expect the gains from labor productivity to flow to consumers and profits, and that looks like what it did. In the, Wait, which chart are you looking at? This is uh, uh, chart 14 on page 17 of the monitor. It's the top right corner there. Um, Got it. Okay, thanks. The... In the last year and a half, um, median wages are up 5%, which is almost as much as they grew during that 10-year that period before. And yes, inflation is still a bit higher than that. But what I'm wondering is, as you look at the economy, 
Is wage growth universally bad in your view, or is wage growth good to the extent that it's keeping up with wages? Because historically, wages didn't keep up. And, and how do you think through that nuance? Because interest rates are a very blunt tool. And, you know, and if we are now, if you agree with me that we're now basically in a seller's market for labor, shouldn't we expect and welcome some wage inflation that goes with that? So I'd say, I'd say two things. First, we, we want wages to go up uh, in ways that are consistent with the, over time, consistent over time with the increase in productivity and inflation. And uh, that, that, makes, that makes all the sense in the world. Um, the other thing I would say is that in this instance, what we've seen is, is inflation eating up. These, these very high nominal wage gains have very largely been eaten up by higher inflation. So it's very important that we restore price stability so that we can start to see real wage gains, real wage gains after inflation across the income spectrum. Yeah, no, and, and, and to be clear, like I, you know, we're all opposed to inflation here. But in, in that 2010 to 2020 period that we all viewed as a very low inflationary period, wages, the gains from productivity did not flow to labor. Wages did not keep up with inflation. And we didn't think about that as a, as a problem for the Fed to fix because overall inflation was down. So, you know, I mean, this, this gets sort of theoretical, but let's say that we had 6% wage inflation and 5% CPI. There'd be more money in people's pockets, but would we view that as a inflationary period to clamp down on? You know, because we, because we didn't view the inverse as a problem, if you will. So our, our job is to restore price stability and keep price stability. It isn't to keep wages down, and it's certainly not to get involved in trying to establish the appropriate level of labor share of profits, for example. That's, that's not the way we think about it at all. We think about price stability, and when we think about price stability, we think about wages as an important input to that. But we're not, we're not targeting a particular level of prices, and we, we would never say that we don't wait, want wages, real wages to go up. What we're really charged with is price stability, and to do that, we have to think about wages. But in particular, we're, no one at the Fed would be upset to see the labor share go up. But that's not, that's not something that our policies affect. That's set by global, you know, globalization and the advance of technology and educational and skills and aptitude and all those things. That's what drives and productivity. That's what drives, you know, um, labor share. Yeah, and, and it's hard to have these conversations in five minutes. I yeah, realize. Happy to um, happy to follow. The, you know, I, I guess what's what's hard is that like you know also in that 2010 to 2020 period, median home prices went up by 50 yeah. percent. We didn't view that as inflationary. You know, 401ks went up a lot. We didn't view that as inflationary because those were asset increases. And so as we have shifted the gains from, you know, from people who had wealth to people who were dependent on wages, there needs to be some correction. And I, and I leave it there because I'm out of time. But how we think Gentleman's about it. Gentlemen's time is expired. You go back. We'll now go to the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Rose, for five minutes. Thank you for being with us today, Chairman Powell. Uh, Chair Powell, I just want to echo at the, at the outset some of the concerns that my colleagues have raised about Vice Chair Michael Barr's, quote, holistic, unquote, uh, holistic review, unquote, of capital markets, and also about the Fed engaging in climate policy, as well as your decision to put Vice Chair Barr in charge of the Community Reinvestment Act rulemaking. With that said, I'm going to dive right into my questions. Chair Powell, I was pleased to see that the U.S. COIN Task Force released their report on the state of coin a few months ago. Uh, the report notes that the Federal Reserve and U.S. Mint will be jointly 
contracting with a third-party consultant to review the coin supply chain and develop recommendations to, re to improve it. Chairman Powell, could you provide us with an update on what the Fed has learned from its review of the coin circulation issues that occurred during the pandemic? So the, um, we know that coin, the flow of coins, the natural flow of coins in the economy slowed down a lot because people were staying home and that kind of thing, and they may have switched to non-coin-based uh, uh, means of payment. And we, we feel like that, the evidence is that that's continued now. P people are paying electronically and things like that, and coins are sitting in you know, jars and on people's desks and at home, and they're not circulating back into the banks and thus to the retail stores. And so we're working on that. We're working with the Mint. We're working with all the stakeholders in the, in the coin ecosystem to try to address this problem, and we're well aware of it. So, so it seems to me that what, what we learned from that is that it's probably necessary to have a a greater reserve of coins if there is such an interruption in the future so that our so that commerce is not indeed interrupted it, would you would you share that broad view that sounds right i'm not, i'm not an expert i will say we, we it feels like we need more more coins now because more of them are are sitting in people's uh, homes and and pockets and they're not flowing back to where you know retailers in particular need need the flow of coins so I, that sounds right to me on a related note, could you speak about the importance of maintaining cash as a viable payment option, particularly for those that lack uh, or don't have access to traditional financial services? It's, uh, we think it's absolutely critical because there, there are people who don't have credit cards. Many people don't have credit cards. They don't have good credit, and they need to be paying in cash. And you know, when stores are not, uh, not dealing with people who don't have cash, it's, it's a serious problem for those people in the economy. We, we have it at the... Uh, at the Board of Governors, and, and you, you see it elsewhere, because most, most payments are now taken care of by credit cards, and it's very efficient, but we need to be looking out for people who, who use cash. Thank you. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, picking up on Mr. Lukemeyer's concerns that he expressed earlier, as you know, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding mechanism is intricately linked to the Federal Reserve System. According to Title 10 of Dodd-Frank, each quarter the CFPB director requests an amount that is reasonably necessary to carry out the Bureau's authorities, and the Federal Reserve must transfer that amount so long as it does not exceed 12% of the Federal Reserve's total operating expenses. For the first five years of the existence of CFPB, of course, there was a relaxation there uh, with respect to that 12% cap that allowed $200 million annually to to be spent beyond that number so long as it was reported, uh, as so long as the reported excess uh, was sent to the President and Congressional appropriators. Chair Powell, during your chairmanship, has the Fed ever rejected a CFPB budget request? I do not believe so. And, and could you tell us what policies and procedures are in place at the Fed to ensure that there is no waste, fraud, or abuse or that these limits are not otherwise exceeded. So we have we have no role in, in engaging with that. It's re really the what uh, we share a common inspector general who who does who does work on those issues. But we we don't in any way we don't have any governance of, of any kind over the CFPB. We're just a source to them. Thank you. I appreciate that insight. In, in closing, Chair Powell, yesterday Senator Warren asked you what you would say to the two million people who may lose their jobs if the Fed keeps raising interest rates. Frankly, Senator Warren should be asking herself the same question when she voted and advocated for the Democrats' reckless spending packages that caused this inflation that we are seeing today 
and is the reason the Fed has had to raise interest rates, in my view. Frankly, I would call on Senator Warren, the President, and the Democratic Party, uh, for that matter, to apologize to the American people for causing this kitchen table crisis across the country. With that, Chairman, I yield back. Now recognize the gentlewoman from Massachusetts, Ms. Presley, for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Powell, for joining us today and for your testimony. I'm going to focus my comments and my questions on the high costs that families in my district are seeing because of your interest rate hikes. <clears throat> now, while the Fed has acknowledged that higher interest rates are not the primary driver for the slowdown in price increases, you continue to raise interest rates, risking not only millions of jobs, but also a recession. Based on projections from the Fed, approximately 2 million people will lose their jobs. So that's 2 million families who will struggle to put food on the table, keep a roof over their heads, and to make ends meet. But the economic hardship does not end there. Mr. Chair, I would like to request uh, unanimous consent to submit a recent paper by the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland titled Post-COVID Inflation Dynamics into the record. Without objection. Chairman Powell, are you familiar with this publication, uh, yes or no? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay. Um, well, let me give you some context. In this paper, the Fed's own economists predict that reaching the 2% inflation goal that you have set will be impossible without causing a recession and spiking the unemployment rate to 7.4%, which translates to millions of working people losing their jobs. Now, Chairman Powell, many economists agree with me when I say that engineering a recession to bring inflation under control is not the right strategy, especially at a time when we are seeing inflation cool in real time, independent of your rate hikes. So on behalf of the people of this country, to prevent a recession, yes or no, Chairman Powell, will you pause future interest rate hikes? We're not seeking to, uh, to have a recession, and we don't think we need to have a recession to get Respectfully, back. will you pause interest rate hikes, yes or no? I don't do yes or no on will I pause the interest rate hikes. Yeah, that's, a, that's a serious question. Um, and I can't tell oh. you because I don't know all the facts. I, you know, that's we're, not a problem. my time. And if that, it is a very serious question because it has a very serious implications. The people who will bear the brunt of an economic recession uh, are our most vulnerable. We know from past experiences that recessions have catastrophic and deeply inequitable consequences. In fact, while some will catch a cold, others will catch pneumonia. But you know that an economic cold or pneumonia. In fact, in your opening statement, you said, we will stay the course until the job is done. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Could you elaborate, um, what is this effect to communities, families, and businesses, these interest rate hikes? Well, um Right now, we're, we're trying to bring down inflation on behalf of all those families. Uh, I think high inflation is hurting, particularly working families all around the country, very badly. And as you know, uh, if, you're, if you're on a very limited budget and you don't have a lot of excess earnings, when prices start going up, you're in trouble right away. 
people, uh, middle and upper middle class people have more resources. So we think it's absolutely critical for the working people of this country that we get inflation back under control. And also, while, while we're at it, we have a dual mandate. Apologies, Mr. Chair, I'm just reclaiming my time here. Here's the thing, the most devastating impacts will be to our most vulnerable. Veterans to our most vulnerable. Veterans, the elderly, low-income workers, black and brown workers, those who have often ignored and been neglected in the name of what you refer to as appropriate monetary policy. And yet, you assert that you will stay the course. It's, it's unconscionable, and our most vulnerable workers and families cannot afford to wait for you to realize the harm that you were doing. In my opinion, this sounds more like uh, the assertions of a greedy corporation uh, than someone who has a public mission on behalf of the people of this country. Uh, so uh, one more uh, question uh, with my remaining time here. Uh, Chairman Powell, another consequence of your interest rate hikes has been the increase of the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate to 6.6%, double of what it was two years ago. Do you see this widening inequity in the housing market as a problem? And what steps will you take to make housing more affordable? This is putting a home ownership further and further out of reach uh, for my constituents, new parents, parents, millennials, people of color, uh, contributing to inequities and the racial wealth gap. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, uh, our policies do Gentlemen, affect- Gentlemen, time's expired. Chairs can submit for the record or answer I'll briefly say that, that uh, if I can, that uh, you know, our interest rate policies uh, affect uh, interest-sensitive spending very directly. When we cut rates, they help housing. When, when, they, when, they, uh, when we raise rates, you see the effect on housing. So. Thank you. The gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Timmons, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Chair Powell, for being with us today. We currently have $32 trillion in debt. Our debt-to-GDP ratio is 120% the highest it's ever been. And yes, we have a debt ceiling fight brewing for this summer. I would argue it's an opportunity to get our fiscal house in order. But sadly, there's no meaningful bipartisan effort to responsibly address our debt. Both sides have even preemptively started political attacks, alleging either side wants to cut Social Security and health care. But politics and talking points will not fix our problem. Our debt is the greatest national security threat. Social Security will be insolvent in 2033. And our health care system is fundamentally broken. We spend twice as much as the average country per person, and our obesity rate is three times the average. I want to be clear, though, I'm not advocating cuts to Social Security, but my Social Security will have to be different than my father's, and we must change the incentive structures of our healthcare system. Briefly, let's go over some history. Social Security was created in 1937. The retirement age then was 65, and average life expectancy was 60. Easy to see how that math works. In 1960, Congress raised the retirement age to 67. It has not been increased since then. That year, life expectancy was 69. That math still works due to a growing population, but it's getting narrower. Uh, I will throw in another few statistics for uh, that year, 1960. 14% uh, of Americans were obese, and our debt-to-GDP ratio was 53%. Let's fast forward to this year. Our retirement age is still 67, but our life expectancy is 77. That math clearly does not work, nor is the program functioning in the purpose for which it was designed. And shockingly, our obesity rate is 37%, and we spend $13,000 per person on health care compared to the global average of $6,000 per person and 13% obesity rate. Clearly, our health care system is failing. Our system focuses on managing sickness, where we should be facilitating health and wellness. 
We will only meaningfully be able to address the debt ceiling by focusing on the biggest drivers of our debt. Responsible policymakers should be focused on saving Social Security by reforming it and transforming our healthcare system to facilitate a healthy citizenry capable of working and being contributing members of society. The, Amer the American people deserve more than the political nonsense. Five years ago, the number one issue I ran on was debt. It has been and continues to be our greatest national security risk. I hate to say it, but the last four years has gotten way worse. Congress has spent $7 trillion, of which $5 trillion was done mostly on party lines. The Democrat majority has not only spent money we don't have over the last four years, but their fiscal policy has caused out-of-control inflation, which caused you to raise interest rates. Last year, I asked you if you ever took into consideration the impact of interest rate increases on the cost of our debt service. You appropriately and adamantly said no. Our debt service costs the next 10 years will be over $10 trillion. I'm going to point out two things. Number one, that is more than all of our debt service since 1940 combined, the last 80 years. And while you did not take interest rate increases uh, impact on our debt service into your decision making, the best estimate is that those rate increases will increase our debt service costs by $2 trillion in the next 10 years. So basically, the $7 trillion that we spent that the Democrats spent in the last four years is going to cost us an additional $2 trillion. And that's not factoring in future rate increases as you continue to appropriately try to get inflation under control. As you can tell, this is a huge problem. Uh, the $7 trillion in unnecessary spending in the last four years has caused inflation. Some of my colleagues across the aisle disagree with that causal relationship. Uh, Clinton's Treasury Secretary and Obama's Director of National Economic Council, Larry Summers, wrote an op-ed before they spent the money and said it was going to cause inflation. And he has gone on the uh, I was right tour for the last couple years. Um, we need responsible policymakers to address our debt. Let's talk about what's not serious, and that's minting a trillion dollar coin. Many of my colleagues across the aisle have advocated for this. Luckily, both President Biden and Secretary Yellen have said that this is not a serious proposal and they have no plans of considering it. Unfortunately, the Biden administration has a bit of a history of doing a 180 when the political winds blow. Most recently, he said he would veto the DC crime bill, and now he's adamantly supporting it and plans to sign it. So, uh, Chair Powell, my only question of you is if Biden and Yellen send you a trillion dollar coin, will you accept it? And, and I, what I will say to that, there's, that this only winds up one way, and that is with Congress raising the debt ceiling. So you will not accept a trillion dollar coin and treat it as a trillion dollars if it's sent to you? I'll add there, there are no rabbits to be pulled out of hats here. This only ends I, with Congress. I know you don't like yes or no's, but if you are sent a trillion dollar coin and asked to be, asked to treat it as a trillion dollars, will you treat it as a trillion dollars? Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. 
Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. That would be a rabbit coming out of a head. I'll take that as a no. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Now recognize the gentlewoman from Michigan, Ms. Talib, for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Chair Powell, for being here. Uh, you have a lot of economic, you know, pro uh, projections, economic projections, uh, various data, um, various uh, reports that are coming out. How much, and you've studied inflation, right? I mean, obviously, it's your number one priority right now. How much is inflation impacted by these three things? Corporate profiteering, executive, egregious executive pay, and the use of share, you know, stock buybacks. So I'm, I don't have numbers, but I, I would say in the case of executive pay and well, in the case of share repurchases, I, I can't think of how it would affect inflation. In the case of executive pay, that would be very small in terms of, uh, of the broader economy. In terms of profits, though, the way I think about that is <clears throat> um, profits are high. The places where profits are really high is places where there, where there are shortages and, and supply chain issues. And as those things get better, as they are, you're going to see uh, inflation come down and even prices come down. And you'll see corporate margins come down there. And that'll be part of how inflation comes down. So. Would you, does that corporate profiteering does impact inflation? Do you, you don't have any stats of percentage-wise how much of it? Yeah. Because you seem, you know, I, I, play, I, I really paid attention to your testimony in the Senate hearing yesterday. And there was a lot of conversation about, you know, my neighbors and residents' wages and so forth. Um, you know, they're finally starting to see a little bit more closer to possibly getting fair wages. It's not even far enough. But... I don't know if the feds is paying closer attention to monopolies, copper, you know, corporate profiteering, and executive egregious pay. All of it, even the stock buybacks, you're saying all of that aside, you're focused more on wages and increasing the interest rate than on those other Our, our focus is really on, on price stability, not, not so much wages. W wages play into that because they're an important cost for business, but they're not, we, we're not, we're not trying to achieve a, a particular level of wages. We're trying to achieve 2% inflation. Yeah, and I think it's really important. You know, Chairman, what we saw during the pandemic is, you know, the wealthy and the corporations continued to profit in large scale and still do buybacks and still do executive, really egregious executive pay and benefits and so forth for those at the top. And then, you know, of course, the communities and such were impacted by it. But what I hear consistently is folks thinking that's the reason. We, oh, the, all of a sudden wages are skyrocketing, all this. But all I see is continuation, again, of those that are already getting a huge benefit, you know, the, corp, the folks at the top, the, the executives, and so forth. I, you know, my friend Glenn taught me this today, that the feds are actually sitting on, you know, something in Dodd-Frank Section 956. You all are sitting on the last 12 years on mm -hmm. guidance regarding executive cons compensation and the high risks of it. 
like around, you know, there was some sort of proposal done, not implemented. Again, it's been 12 years. Why is that something that you're not concerned about regarding inflation? Well, like you guys are sitting, a, one, you're sitting on it, right? Why? Well, it's, it's been 12 years. And then two, why is that you're saying that's not big, big, big deal? That's not going to impact the cost of so, products and so forth for our residents. It's a multi-agency rule, and there have been repeated attempts to get five or six or seven, however many it is, agencies to agree. That's one thing. On uh, disclosures? No, no, this is on, it's, it's on policies to... Um, yeah, which include disclosures and arrangements regarding executive pay the and the risk are, of it. There. Uh, it's, anyway, 956 is, you're right, we haven't been able to get agreement among the agencies. But more to the point, um, you know, there are boards long since, for, this is just for the big banks where we have this authority, long since um, board of directors are, are very focused on on how executive compensation works <clears throat> and that it not reward, uh, you know, unnecessarily risky behavior and that kinds of things. Yeah, but in Dodd-Frank, which Congress passed, there should, you know, you're supposed to put something in place and it's, it's, there's not, it's not in place. And look, I'm saying this because so many people in this chamber, and, and I feel like the feds are more obsessed with wages than they are in regards to the monopolies, the corporate profiteering, there hasn't been any, I mean, really, I don't think there is a laser focus on that. And it's really, you know, because so I think the feds and Congress policy. can support fair wages and still combat inflation if you are fair in combating egregious executive pay, monopolies, and corporate profiteering. We don't do competition, competition policy, and we also don't, broadly speaking, regulate corporate wages. But, but 956 would have addressed it. 956 addresses it. You should have implemented uh, it's 12 years. The gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Norman, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Ms. Powell. Appreciate you coming in. Um, I, I don't have to tell you the fact that housing, so goes housing, so goes the economy. I'm from a state that, uh, from South Carolina, we have people moving in, the population's increasing. And I can tell you housing, not just single-family housing, is in trouble. People are finishing the what's in the pipeline. It's now affected multifamily, apartments, uh, the high rents that they did get with inflation. That's entirely caused, uh, for the most part, by the policies of, uh, of this administration with gas, buying it from other countries, with supply chain shortages. There's no reason to start a project when you can't get supplies. And that's what we're facing in the housing industry at all levels. Uh, so any increase in interest is just another uh, another um, dagger that's going to kill the housing industry along with commercial projects that, again, the pipeline's filling up, but uh, the pipeline, once it leaves, you're not going to have any. And I'm from a state that's with people moving in. One of the things that you hear, I think Mr. Davidson mentioned, was regulations. Banks are complaining about over being overregulated and the costs associated with it. CRA, I know when Brainerd left, um, it's in a state of flux. Who's who's determining that and when do you, will you have some guidelines out? That'll be done by the whole Board of Governors when we vote on it and also by the OCC and the FDIC. Will they have any input from those who are having to pay the price of implementing CRA? Like, uh, get any input from banks that are having, yeah, to, yes. having to navigate 
So yeah, I, I know that throughout the multi-year process, there's been a tremendous amount of interaction with banks, tremendous amount, and bank bank lobby groups, and and uh, and also consumer groups, and then, um, but but yeah, there's been a ton of input, and you know, working with the industry to try to make try to achieve these statutory goals efficiently. I won't say it's perfect, but there's certainly been a lot of interaction. So they're getting input prior to implementing the requirements for CRA or the guidelines for CRA. Yes, I think there's. I, I, I'm. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure there's been quite a bit of interaction with with the industry in terms of what you know, ha, what to do and how to do it. Okay. Now, I think you've stated that you don't feel it's the Federal Reserve's uh, policy to get into implementing climate change. We're not. We, we're not, and we shouldn't be <clears throat> climate policymakers. We do have a small role, a you know, focused role to play, principally with the larger banks to make sure they understand and can manage their climate risks in the long run. Should it be mandated? Should what be mandated? Climate change uh, policies be mandated by the Federal Reserve? You know, I think, again, climate change is something that's going to affect uh, businesses and people and regions and states and, and whole countries. And I think that's that's got to be a job for uh, elected people, by and large. I think what we're going to affect is we just want to make sure that banks understand and can manage the risks that, that, that they're running, and these are principally longer-term risks. What's concerning to those us, of us in the business community who have to borrow for banks, uh, you're the Federal Reserve is conducting a pilot uh, climate scenario analysis that's being mandated, not asked, it's being mandated for the six banks, six largest banks to participate in. Uh, that seems to me like a pretty good, when you, when you have to do a scenario and mandate that they do this, that's, is that not the Federal Reserve getting directly involved in mandating? You know, <clears throat> I think the banks actually want this. They, they want the Fed, these six big banks, they have to face this globally. And what they want is uniform approaches and guidance on how to have one set of rules. They're, they're already running, the big six banks that we're talking to, they're already running climate scenarios all the time, multiple climate scenarios. They're, most of the banks are well capitalized now. That could change. And this is just another expense that is out there. Um, on the CFPB, the history, I think you said it was 12%, uh, it cannot go above 12% uh, ratio. Has that, I mean, that does not seem logical to me. Has it ever been below the 12% the, in, from your perspective? You know, that's, someone here uh, quoted the law and that, that, that rang a bell for me. Uh, so that is, that is what the law says. Have they been below? I, I'd have to go back. I'm happy to provide. It's, it's all If you could, because it seems to me like that's a man, it's, it's, um, if you've got that cap, businesses couldn't operate like that, uh, because it would be no incentive to reduce the price as long as it's automated. That's, Thank the, way, you that's the way the law is set up. Right. Thank you for being here. Thank you. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The gentlewoman from Texas, Ms. Garcia, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Chairman Powell, for being with us today. Uh, the the end is in sight. 
Uh, I would like to begin by highlighting an issue that has been a concern for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and others. I know that the chairman has suggested that we're going to weave in the diversity and inclusion issues throughout our hearing, so, so here goes my concern. Uh, there has never been a Latino Federal Reserve president. Uh, and further, only about 5% of the Federal Reserve's overall workforce identifies as Hispanic or Latino. As we know, over the past year or so, there have been several presidential vacancies at the Federal Reserve banks, and there has still been consistent failure to appoint a Latino candidate. Chair Powell, are you aware of this trend, and do you agree that it's a problem that our diversity, diversity and inclusion numbers are in Federal Reserve Board are not reflective of the Latino population? Yes, it's something we've been focusing on. All right, and can we get a commitment from you that you'll work on the workforce issues internally? Yes. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and I would like to now um, follow up a little bit on some of the questions from uh, Representative Norman, because I too have a concern about housing costs, particularly as it relates to equity uh, and the negative impact on minority communities. Uh, I think you said in your paper uh, that activity in the housing sector continues to weaken, largely uh, reflecting higher mortgage rates. Uh, as he mentioned, uh, the rates are higher, not only impacting single-family housing, but, but uh, multifamily housing, and it's also becoming even more uh, and more uh, difficult uh, for people in my district, which is 77% 77, 77 Latino, uh, to be able to buy their first time first home buyer, uh, you know, the workforce, entry-level kind of housing. As financing homes get harder as mortgage uh, to find and, and mortgage rates rise, the population of home buyers is skewing towards older, wealthier, and wider communities. In many cases, in our suburbs, equity firms are buying out the housing stock. Chair Powell, can you please speak about the relationship to relationship between Federal Reserve interest rate hikes and housing inequity, and what needs to change here? Well, <clears throat> what needs to change is we need to get inflation under control so that uh, interest rates can come back down. In the meantime, they're high because inflation is hurting all of your constituents, not just the, the housing sector, uh, and all of everybody's constituents. And um, it's our job under the law to get to restore price stability and also to, to, to keep maximum employment. Is there anything else that Congress can be doing in this respect? That would be up to Congress, but I, you know, there are lots of ways in which Congress can support people in various ways, uh, but that's, that's, really, that's really in your hands. Right, now I'd like, I want to move on into the numbers that you mentioned uh, again in your remarks at page two. You mentioned that, the, of course, we all know there's been a record historic unemployment rate is down now to 3.4%, the lowest, I believe, in history, and thank you, Mr. President, for that. Uh, but you also mentioned that there's 1.9 job openings for each unemployed individual. I wondered if you, if you could tell me how you define unemployed individual. What does the unemployment, unemployed individual profile look like? So that, that has a very specific meaning. Uh, it's, it's someone who is not working but is actively seeking a job. So, for example, if you take six months off and stop looking for a job, you're no longer unemployed. So that means there's a group of people who are kind of around the edges of the labor force who don't count as unemployed, um, and, and those people are marginally attached to the labor force, that, that kind of thing. But, but to be actually unemployed, you've got to be looking actively for work. 
in the statistics. Right, so it does not include people who are perhaps disabled and cannot find accommodations in the workplace to be able to get a job. Unless they're looking for it. If, if you, it's the, question, the test is whether you're actively looking, I think, in the last... Actively four. looking regardless of, you know, um, age, you know, That's right. whether or not they're... It's not a value judgment. It's just it's the way we assess unemployment. We look at the other groups, too, but actual unemployment is... What, how do you factor in the people that actually have are on, on unemployment insurance? Sorry? How do you factor in the people who are on unemployment insurance? Well, they're unemployed. They've, they've got to be, by definition, un, we count them as unemployed or they wouldn't qualify under the state uh, requirements. All right. Well, I just want to make sure that we, we clearly understand that, <clears throat> that there's children, there's people that are older, people that are disabled, people that can't, can't uh, find daycare. There's so many other reasons why someone is unemployed. Yes. All right, thank you. I yield back. Gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Stile, the chair of the House Administration Committee is recognized for five minutes. Chairman Powell, thank you for being here with us today. Your, your testimony today has been insightful as we look to tackle inflation, the impact that it's having on families across the United States right now. I want to go back to a, a comment that, that was quoted to you as regards to a question from uh, Senator Kennedy yesterday regarding the impact that fiscal policy uh, is having uh, as it relates uh, to inflation. And, and the quote that was attributed to you uh, was that it wasn't a big factor. As we look at kind of a whole host of policies here on Capitol Hill from reckless spending that we saw uh, in, the, in the previous Congress, um, a lack of what we just discussed, individuals who are outside the labor market, how do we get these folks back into the labor market, whether or not we have policies uh, that are discouraging folks uh, to come back into work as we look at high energy costs and opportunity uh, to drive uh, lower to drive energy prices lower uh, by unleashing American energy. How do, you, how do you factor in the fiscal policies or how should policymakers factor in the fiscal policies and their impact that that's also having an inflation? Not, to get, not looking for your advice on the fiscal policies because I know you want to stay out of that, but how should, how should lawmakers be looking at the fiscal policy and its impact on inflation? So let's take energy for example. So remember inflation is the change in prices, it's not the level as you, as you well know. So energy prices have been coming down Right, they're, they're still high, but they've been coming down and they're contributing negatively to headline inflation. So, it, so when I say it's not contributing to inflation, that's what I mean. In addition, if you look at the at aggregate spending, it was, you know, it peaked and then it's been coming down. So the fiscal impulse is actually negative at this point. It's no longer, the, most of the inflation that we now have, something like two thirds of the contribution of inflation in core um, PCE inflation comes from the services sector. And it's not, that isn't really about fiscal policy. Fiscal policy was important at the very beginning, so was monetary policy, by the way, but now it's more about just inflation is, is, uh, is out there and you have to bring it down. It's, uh, it, the record is it doesn't come down by itself it, unless it's driven by you know, transitory factors. For example, uh, in the goods sector, the supply chains have been getting better and as that's happened, goods inflation has come way down and, and sometimes it's negative now. The, that's helpful. Yeah, no, th thank you. And is, is we're, so, so to take that one step further, we're waiting on the president's budget. It's over a month late, but we're anticipating receiving that in the near term. And as we look at interest payments on the debt and the cash flow implications that that, that, that has, not asking for what you're going to do at the next board meeting for obvious reasons, but as you are in those deliberations to future board meetings and potential rate increases, how does the impact of interest on the debt factor into the calculus of you and uh, your colleagues? 
So we don't, we don't look at that. We're not, um, you know, if we started to change our monetary policy because, uh, because we were concerned about the level of, of debt payments and things like that, that's, that's not something that the United States needs to do, and it's not something we do do. Why would it, why would it be something the United States doesn't need to do? What do you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, we, we, we're going to do our job. Congress has given us the job, maximum employment, price stability, regulate the banks, manage the payment system to some extent. That, we'll do those jobs. We don't have to worry about the United States budget. That is not our job. And, you know, it's, it, it, isn't that, it isn't that the debt today is unsustainable. It's that the path is unsustainable. So we can service our debts. It's just that we're on an unsustainable path, meaning that, that the debt is growing faster than the economy. So we, we would never consider, we will never look, you know, it, if, if a central bank has to avoid taking actions because it's concerned about the budget, that's called fiscal dominance. And that's, that's a thing you don't see among advanced economies. And, and it would be something we... You know, we're, we're, we think we're a long way from that. Thank, thanks, thanks for your feedback on that point. The CBO just released their report showing uh, potential interest payments on the debt uh, accelerating dramatically over the next decade, uh, showing it would be 14% of our uh, fiscal spend. Uh, to compare that, right, national defense would be 13, Social Security is also 14, so it's in that level. Th that's, a, that's a policymaker issue, uh, but your insights is that are helpful. I know I only have a few seconds left, and a, and a handful of my colleagues um, have commented on the uh, ongoing review of bank capital standards. I just want to echo uh, those concerns about what the impact would be of a significant uh, capital level uh, increase. Um, could you just comment briefly about how you quantify the cost of higher capital uh, in the supposed benefits and, and how, you, how you balance out that, that risk uh, and reward? So it's, it's always a balance, exactly as you say. We, we know that you know, the, the, uh, the capital increases that I supported back in uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, it, earlier in my time at the Fed, they made the bank stronger and they made them more resilient. And you really want that. You want a banking system that can stand up and keep doing its job in times of crisis. So, but, but the exact balance between that and the availability of capital and the cost of capital is, is always going to be a matter of judgment. Thank you very so, much. I yield back. Uh, the gentlewoman from Georgia, Ms. Williams, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As the member of Congress representing Atlanta, the city with the highest racial wealth gap in the country, I'm focused on creating an economy of inclusion, an economy that works for everyone and brings the most marginalized into our economy. Americans and Atlantans flourish when the economy works for everyone. The Federal Reserve has a mandate of maximum employment that is measured by analyzing various data points of economic conditions. In 2020, the Federal Reserve updated its approach to fulfilling and measuring this mandate to include job growth that was broad-based and inclusive. Chairman Powell, do you agree that broad-based and inclusive growth means job growth that helps reduce racial, employment, unemployment, and wage disparities? I think it means what it, what it says. We don't, we don't, remember, we don't target any particular, uh, we can't really target a particular racial or ethnic group with that, but we, we like to think that that our decisions are informed by an understanding of, of diverse groups across the economy. Well, Chairman Powell, could you share examples of how the Fed is including broad-based and inclusive job growth in the maximum employment mandate? Sure, I'd be glad to. So one thing we do is we always, uh, it's always part of the, uh, the data that we look at at each meeting. We always talk about it, we always mention it. Different, different uh, uh, unemployment rates and labor force participation rates and wage rates and things like that by racial, ethnic, gender groups and that kind of thing. That's always in the data that we look at and talk about. 
That's, that's the first thing. So it, it informs our pursuit of maximum employment. We're, take, we're trying to take a broader and more inclusive understanding of what that statutory goal means. Thank you. Two weeks ago, the Federal Trade Commission released data indicating that Georgians reported the most fraud and scam claims of any other state in 2022, amounting to millions of stolen money. The Federal Reserve's website has resources to help consumers protect themselves from scams where criminals leverage the Federal Reserve's name, including emails claiming potential victims are eligible for lottery winnings, robocalls threatening arrest in exchange for money, and other phishing communications. Chairman Powell, how does the Federal Reserve measure whether its counter-fraud communications are reaching the most vulnerable households and communities, especially those that might not be following the Federal Reserve press releases or your website or have limited access to broadband? So we, we do, when, when those kind of scams happen, particularly when they involve us, we, we go on social media to, make, to try to reach people and tell them that if they're contacted by someone pretending to be a social a, a, a Federal Reserve person, it's, that's not... So we do that. We also we work with our inspector general who, who works with law enforcement to make sure that law enforcement's involved. So we're aware of these scams. You know, I think you're talking about the ones that involve people pretending to be a Federal Reserve person and get in touch with me and, and, I'll, you know, we'll, and we'll send you some money. And so we, we do what we can to reach out to the public on that. So that is that after the fact, but what what happens before so that the general public is aware that this is happening for those people who are not on social media or tracking your, is there another way to get this information out to the general public? It's real, that's, we do what we can. You know, we're not, uh, we're not an institution that deals with the general public very much. You know, we deal with banks and we, and of course our, our rate hikes and, and rate cuts, our monetary policy affects all Americans. But um, I think when, when something like that happens, it's a broad program, it's, it's a bunch of people who are per perpetuating a fraud on many, many people and we try to get out there quickly and re try to reach people and again, also alert law enforcement. Thank you, um, Chairman. And Chairman McHenry, I yield back the balance of my time. That is very kind and gracious of you. The first of the day. We need to commend that for the record. Um, <laughs> uh, with that, we'll recognize the gentleman from uh, Pennsylvania, Mr. Muser, for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman McHenry. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman Powell, for being with us. <clears throat> Chairman, is the, is the Fed's commitment regarding ESG uh, not to force investment banks to renege on their fiduciary responsibilities? We don't actually, we don't actually uh, have policies in effect in that, in that space. That's, okay. not, that's not an assignment that we have. You saw some, some issuances by heads of some investment banks, not to mention any names, that felt that that was the case. That the Fed was asking them to... You know, we don't SEC, Fed, you, you stated a couple of minutes ago that, that you, you, you feel that some sort of ESG, you, you stated that banks want it. And I'm talking, no, that's, that's, that's different, completely different. It's, it's, you know, regulated financial institutions that we regulate and supervise, uh, they're subject okay. to, particularly the big ones are subject so, to so the Fed, climate change. So you agree climate that the Fed won't, issues all over the country. won't ask banks to renege on their fiduciary responsibilities. The Fed won't do that. I, you know, we don't, we don't regulate the investment banks. The SEC does. Okay. So the answer is no. What's the question again? I'll move on. Uh, uh, earlier, uh, some of my colleagues and Chairman McHenry uh, questioned the holistic review of the capital uh, uh, bank holdings. Uh, this holistic review, which no one has seen, according to uh, my sources, uh, but there are published reports that it will call for more capital uh, to be held by banks. Um, I understand the deferral to Vice uh, Chair Barr, 
But do you have any uh, thing that you could add that would warrant a need for large banks' capital increase? So there, there isn't a proposal to evaluate or talk about yet. Um, Vice Chair Barr has indicated he was going to take a look. He said he thinks capital is strong, and the question really is, is it strong enough? And he, I know he's been working, and, and there'll, be a, there'll be a process when he does arrive at conclusions. He, he has no authority to enact something himself. It has to go through the Board of Governors, also through the FDIC and the OCC. Okay, this has so nothing to do with the QT, process. I'm sorry, with sorry. the QT initiative, the uh, tightening of the money supply? They're not related at all? No. No, I would say okay. not. Are you comfortable with the, the QT reductions which have taken place? Yes, the balance sheet is, um, we, we have uh, the balance sheet moving down at, a, at a, a healthy clip, and it seems to be going pretty well. Okay, Very so well. the Biden administration's fiscal and energy policy has caused trillions in deficit spending, uh, as you well know, very, very excessive trillions. Uh, meanwhile, energy costs for the average American have, from, from heating oils to gasoline, have increased by over 40%, and businesses, of course, in the last, just over the last two years. So high energy obviously affects the cost for manufacturing, wages, uh, general cost of living in almost every aspect of society. Wouldn't, would not such fiscal and energy policy work of the Biden administration working hand in hand with initiatives such as QT and initiatives of the Fed be far more effective than the Fed fighting inflation on your own? Well, I mean, we, so we are the agency that has the responsibility to restore price stability, and we just have to do it. That's, that's, what, that's the task we've been given under the law. It's great if Congress helps, it's great if the administration helps, but you know, we have to deliver it, and we will. We're, that's our responsibility, which we, which we fully accept. We're not risking stagflation if the fiscal policy and monetary policy are working against each other? You know, again, we, we, uh, we don't comment on fiscal policy. That's, where, that's for elected people. Uh, and, who've, uh, and, you know, we have a job, maximum employment and price stability. We use our tools. We try to stick. We try to stay in our lane, stick to okay. our netting. It's just the fear of a number of people that we're going to have high interest rates and um, higher than 2% inflation if, if there's not that level of fiscal and monetary cooperation? Again, fiscal policy does what it's going to do. We, we take that as exogenous. You know, that's the fiscal policy will be what you and your colleagues do with, you know, uh, and, and we will, we, that, that comes into the economy and we see it and we, we just, we don't have a view. We don't try to comment on, 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 on the decisions that you make. And we use our tools to restore price stability no matter what happens outside of our building. Sure. Okay. Um, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back. Thank you. Gentleman yields back. We now recognize the ranking member of the Oversight Subcommittee, Mr. Green of Texas, for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Powell, for being with us today. I greatly appreciate your work. But I would like to take just a few moments to talk about how our legislative bodies have legitimized systemic racism. It's been done by having a Fed that has a responsibility to produce maximum employment, knowing that the two-to-one black-white gap, wage gap exists, <clears throat> traditionally, 
and also knowing that traditional actions and methodologies will not change that. But yet, we won't give you the authority to make recommendations or to take actions that would directly target that. It's not your fault. It's the legislative body's fault. We perpetuate systemic racism in your mandate of maximum employment. We also perpetuate it in lending because we know, we know that invidious discrimination exists in lending. We know it exists. And there are laws that will prevent and punish persons who cheat banks. You, you will be prosecuted and you will be fined criminally if you cheat a bank. No such law exists if you cheat a customer. And we know that black people who are more qualified than whites will get less money when they get a loan and pay a higher interest rate. These are all things that are the case, they're true. So legislative bodies continue to legitimize systemic racism. And the bodies have become so bold now, so many of the members, they're so bold now as to say they're sick and tired of hearing about this. They don't, they don't want a discussion about racism and systemic discrimination. They believe that all is well as long as all is well in the white world. But many, they won't say it that way, Mr. Powell, but that's the way their actions would lead one to conclude they have positioned themselves. Many of these people are my friends. People that I associate with, talk to regularly. But there comes a time when you just have to be truthful. Systemic racism can be eliminated. It can be dealt with. We know how to, but we don't have the will to do it. So I don't, I don't fault you. I don't fault you. Not, not one scintilla of blame would I cast your way. It's the legislative body. It's the people who sit on this committee who won't allow laws to be passed, making it a crime to deny a person a loan who is qualified to get that loan. People on this committee who will say they don't want to hear anymore and encourage persons who are professionals, experts, encourage them to push back against talk about invidious discrimination. Systemic racism emanates from the legislative body. And you, sir, are in a very awkward position because I genuinely believe that you'd like to do something about it, but you can't. 
creates a sad state of affairs. I thank you for the time, Mr. Chairman, and I yield back. Gentlemen's time has expired and yields back. The gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Fitzgerald, is recognized for five minutes. Chairman, thanks for being here today. Um, probably get right under the wire here. Um, I, I just had one, and some of my colleagues have touched on this today again, that there's certainly, I think we're well aware, I'm well aware that there's a, a dynamic back in the district and across this nation. There's a certain segment of adults, 25 to 35 year olds, many of them dual income, no kids, and they are completely froze out of the housing market right now either because the cost of a home at a new subdivision in any municipality is a half a million dollars or more. Um, and as a result of that, it's, it's uh, not only by actions of the Fed, I think, on the interest rates, uh, but certainly the other thing I wanted to bring up, because the balance sheet at the Fed has gone from $4 trillion to $9 post-pandemic, um, could the Fed, by no longer buying mortgage-backed securities, uh, and a smaller universe of the private sector buyers who, who demand a higher rate of return, right? Is there not uh, another kind of built-in trigger there that mortgage rates are going to continue to go higher unrelated to what the Fed does? Because I, I think the concern is that between the dynamics of new, new, no new subdivisions, uh, 25 to 35 year olds unable to get a loan, and then uh, interest rates continuing to climb, all of these factors are just, we're gonna lose a generation of adults here that are never gonna get home ownership. They're never gonna benefit, you know, which we all know is the big wealth builder for any family. So I'm, I'm just, if there's anything I take away from what we heard today and the questions asked, I hope that um, that is something that the Fed is, is in tune to and is looking at closely. One thing is that uh, the challenge with supply nationally, and that's zoning, it's people, it's materials. And so there, you know, the housing stock is constrained to some extent by just harder to find zoning anymore because you know, things are so built up in so many places. And those are not things that we can control. In terms of our ownership of mortgage-backed securities, what happens with them is they mature, or they're, prepa they're pre repaid or prepaid, and they run off on their own. That's a passive, uh, passive sort of way to shrink the balance sheet. And of course, they don't, they don't run off very quickly when rates are this high because people are not refinancing their mortgages because they have much lower mortgages, mortgage rates. So, you know, there's no evidence at this point that, uh, you know, that the market's having a hard time absorbing, uh, you know, the, the supply of mortgages because the supply of new mortgages is very low. It's probably right, it has to be right, that, that uh, when, when we're no longer buying mortgages, and we won't be, we're not buying mortgages now, and I hope we don't have to buy any more mortgage-backed, we don't buy individual, you know, we buy mortgage-backed securities. I hope we're not doing that anytime soon. We only do that in, in really uh, severe situations. That they're, you know, the, the fixed income markets are, are gigantic, and there's a lot of buyers out there, and where there's a yield, uh, there'll be buyers. And, and I think that, that will, I expect that'll be the case. It, it might, not that it wouldn't have some upward pressure on, uh, on rates for us not to be a buyer anymore, but you know, we, we weren't a buyer for a very long time. We thought we'd never go back in after the global financial crisis, and we, we kind of had to after the pandemic financial crisis just to keep the markets working, and, and now we've stopped again. Good, thank you very much, Chair, and I yield back. Gentleman yields back.
noteworthy. Uh, I want to thank, uh, in particular, our members, Mr. Fitzgerald and Ms. Ms. Williams, for uh, their additional minutes back to the Fed chair. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a rate environment like this, time is money, and that's much more valuable these days. Um, I'd like to thank the chair for his testimony. Um, and uh, without objection, all members will have five legislative days with whom which to submit additional written questions for the uh, witness to the chair, which will be forwarded to the witness for his response. I ask uh, you, Chair Powell, to please respond as promptly as you're able. Uh, and with that, the hearing's adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.